Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Before we kick off this new episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast, a quick word from our friends and partners at Future Talent Sports Cards. What do Future Talent do? Well, they do, as I say, sports cards. And why would you want to go there? Because we're right at that time of the year where cricket clubs around Australia are preparing their presentation nights. And as I said on the show the last few weeks, those trashy participation trophies that we all got when we were kids. If you didn't win the bowling average, you didn't win the batting average, you'd end up with this tiny little trophy that ended up in, well, back when I was a kid, the bin. These days, hopefully, the recycling bin. All they do is gather dust. They serve no practical purpose other than acknowledge the fact that you paid your fees at the start of the season. Well, with future talent, you can do so much more than that. These bespoke cards, they're, they're, they're affordable. Uh, they're made by a wonderful company that's been going now for 10 years, futuretalent.com.au. Uh, courtesy of Heath Evans, who's one of my oldest friends in the world. He started this from scratch. They've got a five-star rating from Google and from Facebook. You get fantastic service from Heath. He's one of the best blokes you could ever possibly come across. He understands sports clubs intimately, having been involved in footy clubs for the last 15 or 20 years. And and these cards are absolutely fantastic. As we mentioned uh, before, Jeff and I had some cards made up for us for our live shows earlier in the cricket season, and people love them. And the reason they loved them wasn't because of our faces. It was the make of the card, the biographical information on the back, the photo on the front. You can give your players, especially your junior players, something they'll, they'll truly remember, a memento of the season they've just completed. As I said, there's a good discount, a healthy discount, if you're a final word listener, 15% to be precise. So when you go and put your order in at futuretalent.com.au and pop in final word cricket at the payment bar, you'll be able to get yourself that 15% discount. And of course, just drop Heath a line. Jump on the website at futuretalent.com.au. Tell him that you know us and I'm sure he'll look after you. He's been a wonderful supporter of the final word. If you can support his business, especially now we're at the the pointy end of the cricket season around Australia or other clubs around the world, I should add. Heath's been um, receiving um, receiving um, inquiries from from different listeners who, who listen to the final word in different parts of the cricketing world and there's no issue with that either so if you're in the UK or the subcontinent or South Africa or New Zealand get in touch with Heath at futuretalent.com.au he'll certainly look after you now onto the show I had to go about it write it out and find it myself and there's some stories I can tell you Welcome to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins. Normally, I'd say down the line, I'd be talking to Jeff Lemon, but Jeff's on holiday for the next couple of weeks, as we explained on the last edition of the show. And with me, instead, sitting across 
His living room in South London is a voice that you'll be well familiar with. Commentator from BBC Test Match Special, veteran of the final word, both as a co-host when Jeff hasn't been here in the past during the World Cup on a couple of editions and, of course, on Nerd Pledge Quiz as well. Daniel Norcross, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Literally huge boots to fill, as we know. <laughs> that size 15 in the case of Jeff. But yes, uh, we did trip the light fantastic in this very room back in June of last year following an amazing one-day international World Cup game between India and Afghanistan. That's right. That was the game where you called a hat-trick from yeah. Muhammad Shami to yeah. finish the game, if I recall correctly. Yeah, Afghanistan should have won that game. I'm yeah. still really annoyed by that because it would have been the new story of the World Cup, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we were doing the first half of the show whilst listening... No, watching, maybe on my phone. We were watching on the motorway. Yeah, Carlos well, Brathwaite nearly beat New Zealand on his own and Trent Bolt mm-hmm. take the catch to, to secure an unlikely victory in the end. Well, you were doing most of the watching. I was driving, trying to keep us alive. <laughs> You'd just finished writing an article, couldn't send it because we were in a 4G blind spot. Oh, that's right. Then you got back on it. Then you got instantly excited by Carlos Brathwaite and then you started commentating it in the style of... Um, of like Jim Maxwell on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of like nearly crashed the car into the central reservation. And um, yeah, everything sort of... Ca- I think we began the podcast actually in the outskirts of, of London because I think you can hear my indicators going... That sounds about right. We were off the motorway. We were nearing here. That's why we, yeah. we finished it off here. So, yeah, June, it feels like a long time ago, seven months ago. Hard to believe so much has happened in, in the in the world of cricket and, indeed, the final word. And I guess my life as and, well. And, well, indeed, yeah. to you. I mean, you weren't pregnant then. We were, yeah, we I were. I mean, it barely shows on you, to be yeah, fair. Well, yeah, well, we had a scan this morning. No, we, we, were, we were just pregnant. And now we're, what, we're a week away from full term and a, a few weeks away from the due date. So it's all, all going to be Yeah, but all, all phones are off, people. So don't worry. If, if, uh, suddenly pregnancies you know if it, if it occurs I'm not going to find out you know, you're not gonna find it. You if we go early well, this is more important for now and priorities yeah. you know the world of cricket which of course this week's been in Australia in India in England we'll cover all of that there'll be nerd pledge given you're doing two episodes uh, in the in the in the co-pilot chair we're going to give you a segment called your band list which we'll come to oh, yeah. after the interval to begin thanks to everyone for your comments and emails and so forth about our conversation about four day test cricket last week it seemed to strike a nerve um of course, we saw Dan last week, or yesterday even, a contribution from the, the MCC, so the custodians of the game at Lords, uh, voicing their concerns about four-day test cricket. It feels as though when Virat Kohli made his intervention, it started to almost go on the back burner. And then the MCC, not that they control what the ICC will do in terms of the World Test Championship, but it feels as though that, that's moved on a bit since last week. Yeah, I think Kohli probably trumps the MCC. I think his, <laughs> his intervention is slightly more important than the former custodians of the game, but... It's good to see senses prevailing. Uh, but I think we'll have to keep fighting, you know, because money men and broadcasters don't give up with these things. They'll just keep on poking and hope that, you know, at some point Virat Kohli might get tired and not fancy a fifth day. You know, they'll, they'll, this, this fight is not going to end with a couple of sensible interventions. No, I, I think that's right. And look, I, I'm sort of trying to view it in a balanced way. We said last week that I feel as though everyone's... Most people are coming to this uh, with the best interests of Test cricket at heart. I, I think there are some disingenuous arguments out there, but most of them are, uh, are hoping to, to create a, a climate where Test cricket can be profitable for countries where it's not at the moment and, and, and so on. But it, yeah, to retain five-day Test cricket in any form is going to require keep banging away. And hopefully we're able to keep contributing to that 
discussion. Dan, at this time of year in the UK, which I'm not normally here in the winter, of course, I'm normally back in Australia, or by this time of year, maybe on, a, on, a, on an autumn tour, but you are always here and we've experienced this winter together and I've seen you go through various stages of, of, uh, yeah. of, of, uh, of despair as we've worked our way from well, October when the, sort of, when, the, when the clocks change, which is kind of a significant moment, through to the depths of winter and I note now that there's sun outside right now and, and we're just kind of turning the corner somewhat as we make our way towards the next summer over here. We, we are, yeah. I mean, it's particularly poignant and miserable for me because there was a moment when I thought I was going to get winters away. So a couple of years ago, uh, having started with the BBC in 2015, really, then I got to go to Bangladesh for a few mm. weeks. Then I had all of Australia for the ashes from, from uh, November the 13th to January the 31st, which for people of English sensibilities, what, what really upsets us is the darkness. Mm. I mean, I know it's tough talking to Australians about this right now when you're beleaguered by hot sun and winds and, you know, really severe drought and climate problems in England we have the sort of inverse problem which is darkness and so going away for five and a half weeks before the winter solstice and returning five and a half weeks after it was fantastic, that was <laughs> 11 weeks of the darkest time gone, now because of the completely unreasonable intervention of Talksport into a free market and uh, winning rights which they're entitled to buy uh, I find myself... You're stuck with us. <laughs> I'm stuck, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in England, uh, you know, uh, which is tough. So, well, the, I, But does, what, though, mean that we can, you know, indulge? Well, yeah, what, what I used to do, and, and I still do this a little bit, what I used to do is break each month down into thirds and then say to myself, you know, and it would start on the 1st of October and end on the 31st of March because in England cricket is essentially April to September. You can hope in those months. So let's say you're on the 4th of October and it's like um, like 8 o'clock in the morning, 8.01 in the morning, that would have meant I'd started the middle of the beginning of October. So I've broken it down to thirds and then thirds again. That's how crazy you get. But then it occurred to me in a blinding light of inspiration that the Second World War, which at the moment people in my country are fetishising it with unusual alacrity. They just love the Second World War, I think... Um, because so few people got the chance to nearly die in it, they, they feel this incredible jealousy towards the people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, like my dad did, uh, fighting in the war, and they've uh, imagined it as some great thing. So I thought, in keeping with the zeitgeist of British madness, I would break down the six months of winter, October to March, inclusive, and turn them into the six years of the Second World War. So... The 1st of September 1939 is the 1st of October, right? Mm. And then you get the phony war. And the phony war is that bit where uh, basically Britain knew it was at war, didn't do a lot of fighting, and then it, it gets defeated at Dunkirk, everything goes horribly wrong. That's when the clocks go back in England, and that mm. creates super darkness. And then you know you're in for the long haul. The blitz occurs, that's like the back end of October when the sheer horrifying weight of what you're going to have to undergo comes crashing down on you. And so you do that for each year. It means that, for example, on about the sort of 10th of December, um, that's Pearl Harbor. That's 1941. That's when the Americans joined the war. And you know, so Wasn't that the 9th of December in 1941, if I recall yeah, correctly? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, which, which sort of works out quite neatly. Yeah. And uh, what's particularly nice about it is that uh, in England, because, well, in, in the whole, whole world, but it's more exaggerated the further north or south you go because the earth is an oblate sphere. You don't get this on most cricket podcasts. It's an oblate sphere. 
time does not just go back and forth equally at the beginning and end of the day. So the earliest sunset in London, in, in England, is the 13th of December. Mm. But the shortest day isn't until the 22nd, 22nd of December. December yeah. Because the, the mornings keep getting darker all the way through to the 5th of January. I'm boring you now. But basically, basically what it means is that uh, Pearl Harbor happens at pretty much the time of the, the earliest sunset. Yep. So beyond that, you can start to see light encroaching. Now, I guess the question you're going to ask me now is what day is it now in where, the war? Where are we in the war, yes? Well, so I can tell, given you, exactly, we have spent I tell the, you exactly you, where we are in the war. Right, okay. It's, it's just coming up to two o'clock. So that's 175 days in to the year 1942 to 43. So the, that's the 19th of February. <laughs> Uh, that's the Battle of the Kasserine Pass in mm. Tunisia, in which an overwhelming number of Allied soldiers were briefly pushed back by Rommel, highly successful German general, one of the good Germans, you know, the non-Nazis. And uh, he pushed back the Allies, who are mostly American, untrained American soldiers, which one of the reasons that uh, D-Day didn't happen until 1944 was because the Americans weren't used to having to fight against well-trained German and Italian soldiers. Uh, this was one example of their failure to manage. Now, fortunately, with the intervention of some Brits, um, Rommel eventually got pushed back. By the end of today, it'll be the 24th of February, and the Allies will have won, with severe casualties, the Battle of the Kasserine Pass. So when, when is that? That's in 1942. 1942. Oh, right, so we've already passed... 19th of February, 1943. Right, so we've passed El Alamein, we've passed Midway, which are considered to be the, the official yeah. turning points where the Allies, you know, mm. took control, if you like, we and where it became... We've turning points. We are, we are, we so are, we've had the two major yeah. turning points, now we're into another significant battle. Significant significant battle, but significant mostly because uh, what, this, what this does is cement our Allied control of North Africa, which will allow them to move into Italy, which for the purposes of this we will yep. call February. <laughs> <laughs> the right? tough old boot of Italy. Yeah. Now, and, and it works perfectly because, of course, February is a really, really difficult month in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. But by the same token, you can see light at the end of the tunnel. So a lot of the Allied effort during the war to, to win that war took place in what we're calling February and March. You know, that's yep. February... We'll take in the very end of February, we'll take in D-Day. Well, well I suppose before we've got yeah. Battle of the Bulge, we've got D-Day, yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. we're making our way through to what would be the start of the county yeah. season on the 12th of April this year, is it not? Yeah. It's the yeah, second we will, weekend we of April. Will have, we will have the university fixtures, which we will, will happen just after the clocks go forward in March. Ah, that's good. That's which good. is lovely, which is, which is what we normally call in this new system VE Day, which is uh, <laughs> May 1945. But so then, the university fixtures are VE Day. VE Day, yeah. And then by the time... Get oh. to the end of March, that's when you hit VJ Day. No, no, but I've got to put something in between there. If we're going to go with VE Day being when the university fixtures are played and the first class, um, sorry, rather the county championship is the 12th of April, then I'm going to go with July. Before VJ Day, there were the victory tests played between uh, the Australian and English servicemen. Now, in, I think it was, oh, I want to say the 16th of July, the, the victory test at Lords finished on the final day the last session, Australia win by three wickets, I think it was. Keith Miller integral at the end. On the same day that Churchill dissolved the coalition government, he went to uh, he went to the Queen, or it would have been the King, sorry, he went to the King and said, um, the coalition government is over, there's going to be elections held, and they, of course, happened before VJ Day. So we've got a nice cricket link to when the start oh, of the county championship will be. And do you know what? Because March is quite, the, the last Saturday in March is quite late this year, 
that is actually the day I believe the clocks do go forward. Oh, so that is there. It is that's virtually our liberation. Then there's a couple more days till VJ Day, <laughs> day which is my happens. birthday, incidentally. VJ Day being the fifteenth of August. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely beautiful. It's so yeah, delightful. I mean, that's essentially we can now feel hope, but we realise that we still got to put our grist to the wheel, our shoulder to the metal. Um, well, we, we still, we still, yeah, we still lose the equivalent of two hundred and fifty thousand troops on the first day of the Normandy invasion, which is a bit of a struggle. We might have to find a way to reconcile well, that's, that. Well, no, well, Although it is a broader success, uh, yeah. But you know, Normandy is not until um, late February when a lot of people come down with heavy colds and flu. I mean, it kind of still fits. Yeah. Oh yeah, you still have you can still have some really tough, tough times towards the back end yeah. of February. Don't get me wrong. It was that like. We're by no means out of the woods. We've got a lot of... We've got band of brothers yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Norcross. <laughs> I feel like it's a whole bit. You did do a bit of Edinburgh last year. Maybe that should be uh, part of it next year. Um, what I was angling at before we had that um, necessary um, uh, diversion was that you actually have been covering the cricket. You've been staying up to all yeah. hours. The Melbourne Test match, you and I were texting each other into the wee hours when you were doing the voiceover work oh, for BT tough. Sport. You've done loads of commentary on, on the Big Bash League as well. I go as far to say that you've watched, well, I've only watched about 10 balls of the BBL this year. Whenever uh. Glenn Maxwell's on one and I see a bunch of Twitter um, messages saying, oh, Glenn Maxwell and, and, and being tagged into conversations, I, I flick over just at the end of his mercurial innings. He's hardly on because unfortunately the stars are so good that their, their top order is keeping him out of bat. I mean today right. they won by eight wickets. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, and chasing uh, about ninety odd, weren't they? Yeah, eighty six to win. Eighty six. And Maxwell didn't even get a didn't even get a chance to bat. So yeah, I've seen a lot of the big bash. I found the tests enervating. I've got to say, <laughs> uh, really disappointing. Um, New Zealand. I was going to say they didn't turn up. I feel a bit sorry for them. I mean, I, I've got a theory that this is. Potentially Australia's best bowling lineup that they they've ever had, and the fact that they've kept them together—it's so weird. You know, I was in Australia as I mentioned earlier three seasons ago, two years ago, and that Australian bowling lineup was exactly the same as the one that started this year. Yeah. So that's three seasons later. Uh, what are we talking about? Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, Lyon, and to keep that together is is incredible. And Tim Payne as well. You know, mm. Warner Smith. It's basically. A very very settled side, which Australians may not feel that's happened because there's been so much turmoil in Australian cricket. But it means that in those conditions, anyone going there is going to struggle. And I thought New Zealand would do better, but unfortunately, there's a pattern in Australian Test matches, which is partly Australia's vast superiority in their own conditions, but it's partly the conditions themselves that Australia scores a shitload of runs. The opposition. Uh, concede a lead of 220 and then the game becomes unbelievably dull while Australia decide what arbitrary number above 450 they're going to set the opposition <laughs> and then from a purely from a freelancer's point of view who knows he's going to get paid for all five days no concerns the most exciting thing is can this finish inside four and me get a paid well, I have day the off. I have the other yeah that's where you and I differ as freelancers because you get paid for all five yeah, days regardless right, yeah. whereas I needed yeah. to tick over and I was fortunate enough in this is so indulgent but last year I think it was we had three test matches which just spilt into the fifth day so there was the one at Trent Bridge where oh, India yeah. held on uh, well, sorry rather England held on um, to get it into a, I don't know nine balls into the fifth day at yeah. Durban uh, before the um, sandpaper stuff took over the whole series um, uh, that also stretched into day five by about ten minutes and then in Melbourne to end the year where Pat Cummins 
uh, bravely held off India to, to get that to a fifth day. So, you know, there's different ways of interpreting this. But we'll come to the Australian team in a sec. We've seen from an England perspective, um, Tom Batten, quote, found it. So oh, yeah. thanks to the BBO. We, we, I mean, honestly, a, I, I had England no fans idea. did not like it. I had no idea about this guy. I mean, honestly, I'd never heard of him. And there's, there's another guy. I don't know if you've seen A.B. De Villiers. Uh, this, this South African dude has rocked up. And if it weren't for the big bash, I don't... I mean, those guys would probably still be working in a, in a, in a garden centre, but... Um, Flipping yeah. burgers. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was one that was, 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 uh, was, was once uh, uh, said about an Australian player, if not for uh, the intervention of uh, certain broadcasters. Tom, ba- Tom Banton has been brilliant, uh, I have to say. Uh, uh, no great surprise. Uh, it, it, there have been a couple of England openers, English openers up the top of the order. It's been Liam Livingston yep. uh, for the Scorchers. It's been Alex Hales for the Thunder. But Banton's been the one that's freaked everyone out most because he sort of outscored Chris Lynn on a number of occasions. And that's like, you know, you're not supposed to do that at the Brisbane Heat. He's a bash brother or something. And it's some hideous term that's used for him. And Brendan McCullough is all very matey. And Banton's come in and sort of surprised people. And they've, they've uh, let Banton go because Xavier de Villiers has turned up, mm. uh, which I'm not sure is necessarily the smartest move I think they could have played both but then there's only two overseas players allowed in Big Bash which is a strange thing actually it's got a lot of Big Bash I've really enjoyed it but I think almost because there are nine Australian <coughs> players in each team it sounds really rude but um, I've seen some pretty ropey games. I think they could do with just expanding it to three, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been... I, I don't know exactly where they landed on this last year, but, I mean, it, the fact that Glenn Maxwell and Marcus Stoinis were dropped from the uh, limited overseas tour actually. has <laughs> meant that... Well, Maxwell did what Maxwell did. Stoinis made yeah. a 147 break. A genuine maximum, the record. if you're a snooker fan. Yes, that's right. Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, the 147 break for, for, for Marcus Stoinis, which was, um, you know, after he, he, uh, he got himself in, in hot water last... Last week uh, and came and, and continued to play. Didn't get suspended uh, after getting. That's an, that's an odd story. What, what's the, what's the exact uh, details behind that? I saw, I saw yeah. echoes of it this morning when I woke up on Twitter. So, so what's happened there? Fair bit. Let's go back to the start. So those who weren't following the story, Marcus Dornis was fined uh, on the basis that he called Kane Richardson. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to say what he called him uh, on the basis that it is not a term that we need to say. But if you want to Google and find out the, the, the slur, the homophobic slur, you'll, you'll be able to find it. But where this got interesting, I suppose, was on a couple of levels. One is that Stoinis thought he was going to be suspended and relayed as much to his teammates on the night. He wasn't. Um, the next day, the story broke. So there was a, a statement went out in the usual way. Um, saying that he'd been fined and there'd been a, a, a breach and, and so forth, but it didn't spe- specify what had happened. And Tom Morris from Fox Sports wrote a story explaining that it had been a homophobic slur and, and, and the story you know, gathered pace accordingly. Uh, the reporting overnight... Uh, went to um, Morris and whether he did or did not uh, get taken off Big Bash games subsequently where the stars were involved because he was also the boundary rider. So this is a bit complicated, but the guts of it is is that um, Tom Morris is a boundary rider for Fox Sports, but also a journalist, uh, a written journalist, a very good one, I should add, breaks a lot of stories, both in cricket and in, and in Australian rules football. So um, there was reporting from in the Australian newspaper this morning that he'd been banned from covering um, the stars as a boundary rider. Now that had been clarified too. He has been banned but um, they'd made a decision uh, at Fox Sports not to let him interview or an editorial decision that he wouldn't interview um, some players in the next game the Stars played so it, it, it doesn't 
I mean, you can interpret it how you will, but it, 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 it stinks. I mean, if, if well, he's... what does if, it say about the person that is doing that role? Because it suggests that whoever's going to be doing that role has been told that they mustn't ask certain questions. Well, I mean, yeah, so... Does, well, yeah, well, that, that's it. So there's, there's, I guess, the two different roles, right? There's the, Tom is a journalist and Tom is a, as a boundary writer and, and should his work as a journalist impact what he's able to do or impact the type of roles he's able to perform as a boundary writer? I mean, you know, when that first blew up um, late last night England time I mean it felt rather Soviet for my way of looking at it I mean the idea that you would restrict someone's um, role in a free media especially when it's the same organisation it's quite murky so uh, a representative of Fox Sports confirmed that he had been not interviewing players uh, in the next game the Stars had played in Um, the Stars denied the report and said that it didn't happen um, you know and the back and forth will continue, I'm sure, accordingly. But, I mean, no one's disputing the fact that um, his role has at least changed in some part since the Farago last week. So I'm sure there'll be more to run on that story. But, I mean, the Pete Lawler report in the Australian really was trying to say, how is it possible that Stoinis got away with a fine um, rather than a, a sanction that would have seen him miss games, given um, that I think that CA have been excellent on these issues historically when you look at the advocacy that they did around the, the gay marriage plebiscite back in 2017 and and so on to think that this could slip through the cracks and the stars could act in this way and essentially if you interpret it the way that I think we are the reporter is being almost partially held to account for what he's done as distinct from the player the person yeah. who's missing out here isn't the player of course Stoinis went on and made those runs last week and it, you've got to be careful in the way you you know the way you reflect on Stoinis I suppose because um as Pete had in his story as well. Stoinis has been sort of on the front foot of, of, uh, of being a player who's not been shy about, you know, he went along to the AB medal with a, a, a male date, if you like. He's been doing um, sort of uh, TV spots where he's been out vintage shopping with Adam Zampa, yeah. playing dress-ups and so on. Behaviour which historically would have got him, I'm sure, um, criticised in a derogatory way about his sexuality and so forth. And um, he's obviously, it came out with this outburst and, and had to apologise for it. You can't be exonerated because, you know, some of your best friends are... Oh, no, 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 I'm not I mean, doing that. I'm sorry, sorry. I'm just you've got to be a bit careful. You've got to be a bit careful applying context. But it, yeah. what I was going to add to that is that that shouldn't mean that he shouldn't have copped the, the full no. weight of the, of, the, uh, of the punishment that could have come his way. And, Look, and he avoided you know that. better than I do because you're Australian. So, I mean, sometimes there, there, are, there are words that people have been brought up using and they haven't thought about their derivation. Yeah. Is this particular slur one that, you know, might have just slipped into American parlance, uh, Australian parlance for so many oh. years that it's only recently that people are aware that it's it's actually quite a damaging yeah, and yeah, pr- There's probably something to that. Pro- but, uh, you can't, again, you can't exonerate on the basis that Stoinis has been around the national setup for, oh gosh, three or four years now and he would have gone through a number of different training courses, I'm sure. And as I said, CA are big on this. Um, a lot of uh, players who identify as gay in the women's team, for example, and there was a blow-up a couple of years ago with Steve O'Keefe and a number of other things that have happened in this sort of Joe area. Joe Root, Shannon Gabriel Joe Root, Shannon Gabriel last year. I mean, you can't claim, you can't um, plead ignorance on yeah. this one. And I, I'm sure that, you know, the way that Stoinis threw himself on top of this and took full responsibility and so forth in his public commentary, there was no caveat. He apologised and said it was unacceptable and, and all the rest of it, but it doesn't mean you don't cop your whack. And, yeah, where, where this got muddied up is that, so where he's not copying his whack, if you like, by virtue of not getting suspended, and a reporter who broke the story has found himself in this predicament. That seems that seems yeah, well, that, more that, than strange that and quite stinky. To, that talks to another thing that you and I have talked about a lot. A lot of people have talked about a lot, and it's been going on for, for over 15, 20 years now, I'd say, 
which is since rights have become so valuable in sport, they never used to be, uh, you got the sense as a kid that because the BBC just had the rights to the cricket, they would report the cricket as if it was news. So they felt no need to big it up and say this is a brilliant game yep. or a poor game or whatever. They would just say what it was, and that was how we used to ingest our our sport. Whereas now, uh, I'm not going to you know label this particularly at Fox or Channel Ten or you know Star Sports in India or whatever, but there has been this creeping uh, entertainment aspect to to cricket as if the the rights holders need to promote the product that they've got. Well, so, are they an extension of, of, of the... In this case, to, does the host broadcaster become an extension of the body they are covering? Well, so I think that, they that, do. And that is, that is tricky I think, terrain. I, think, I mean, I well, we've, we talked do. about this on the final word before about where the rights have fallen in previous cycles and so forth. And with the BCCI, how they produce their own content, there is an element, a strong element of what they can control going to air. And we've there's been some sort of notable examples. Ian Chappell, for one, who refused to... Um, and there's a, we, we spoke to Ian Chappell around this time last year and he went into detail around it if you want to hear some uh, longer discussion around this. But... We, we've often, often said to each other, Michael Holding, another great Michael example. Holding, was, yeah. when, when working for the ICC. Yeah, he, 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 he blew up and said, you know, either I have editorial freedom or I don't. And we've sort of said in the past that CA might choose to do it themselves in the future. They might choose to be their own production company. We've seen them stream a lot of games. You know, they do a good job of it in terms of the, you know, what you see going to wear and all the rest of it. Maybe they could up the ante and do it themselves. But I if they've got, but, but, but why do they, but why would they need to if they've got a, a broadcaster who acquiesces to the interest of a, of a, of a club, in this case the Stars, if that is the communication as it's been directed um, and if they've found an accommodation where he doesn't do what he otherwise would have been doing, even in a small part, even if there was a compromise found or whatever it is, we don't know fully, but let's assume there's been, based on the confirmation on Twitter this morning, definitely something happened in that next game. Um, Fox acknowledged that. Um, does that mean that the, the CA needn't worry about doing it, doing it in-house when they already have this sort of influence with the host broadcaster? Well, and I, should they? Or should, or should the host broadcaster be there as a, a journalistic organ which is completely separate um, to, to, the, to the host there's board? No, there's no right or wrong on this. It's just you've got to understand what happens if they, if they don't. If, if, the, if the host broadcaster is, just, is going to be a cheerleader, partly because they want to ensure that they keep on getting the rights to do it yep. and do it themselves to prevent the, the, the board from thinking it's worthwhile doing then what you'll get is, as a watcher and a listener, is a really skewed view of the product that you're getting, which will impact um, your understanding of the game and, crucially, just how brilliant an innings was or a bowling spell was. Because if everything's brilliant all the time, you've got no context for it. If the broadcaster doesn't say, you know, this is a really bad passage of play, the, the bowling has been poor, there's nothing much entertaining in the crowd here... If everything is absolutely brilliant, then you don't realise and recognise when something really brilliant happens. Yeah, and look, you've got another register to go to. So. I'm not sure whether that's as much of a risk. I think that, that that sort of on-field criticism would happen. Where I look at it is that when there's broader issues that would be interrogated by well, the journalists. Yeah, there's that as well. May yeah. not otherwise be interrogated in the same way. And that's where this distinction between um, broadcaster and and or media organisation who are Broadcasting versus their, I guess, what we considered them to be as journalists, where that intersection is. And this is, yeah, it, it does draw this into focus, and rightly so. And I'm glad there's a conversation being had around it. And I'm sure. Um, I like to think that on the, on the BBC, you know, if we have a slightly different relationship uh, as a BBC, I think, because there's a, there's, there's a relationship that you have to have with the licence fee payer, which is effectively yep. the taxpayer. 
because that's the way it's funded in uh, in the UK. I know it is in Australia as well, but it's slightly different because the ABC is paid by tax as opposed to paid by a licence fee. So uh, if we if that had happened in a match that the BBC was reporting on, then they would feel that there was a, an important public service remit to report yeah. on it. Uh, the danger comes, I guess, with um, companies that are competing with other companies as private companies to have the rights to these matches, not wanting to upset the authorities. The authorities, the authorities really need to stop getting so touchy about this because people can smell bullshit a mile off. Yeah. Uh, I think that, and you can where, see that, by the way, in response. The issue, when it? you can see that in response, I mean, you know, uh, I, I appreciate that, that Twitter's a, a sewer and, and all the rest of it, but the way this was received, people can smell it's bullshit as well. Like people oh, yeah. can kind of sense um, when something's amiss. But every board has been trying to do this for the last twenty years. Uh, yeah. The major boards, uh, and in fact, you know, even the minor boards. You know, we've seen how South African South African board was. Very, very touchy about which journalists were allowed in and not allowed in. Oh, there was absolutely. a little bit of controversy at the start of this, uh, yep. this South African Test match summer. Um, we've seen the ECB, a Cricket Australia, and a BCCI show uh, they show instincts that aren't aren't necessarily uh, happy with scrutiny, full view, and um, and people writing things that they write. You know, George DeBella's written things about the ECB and that's caused gosh prompt legal action it's prompt legal action exactly now I think that it it would be much smarter for all these boards just to chill out a little bit because I think that what they think they're protecting they're not protecting by doing this I don't think it decreases or or increases the number of viewers that there are if you cover something up I think it means that the viewers that are there have less and less respect for you mm. and and because people still love the game, they'll still come and watch the game, but they will start to be uncertain about the decisions you make in other parts of the game in future. You know, we've seen it by the way fans have reacted to anything that uh, the ECB has attempted to bring in to domestic cricket. There's a sort of, the knee-jerk reaction is one of suspicion. It's yeah. not one of trust. And you've got to ask yourself, where's that come from? Yeah, and you've got to remember that from a CA perspective, they're already... They're already behind the eight ball on this on the basis of what happened in 2018, the, you know, the culture of you and, and so forth. So they're not exactly coming from a position of strength when, when stories like this do filter out. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that CAO, the Melbourne Stars or anything like that, although it is kind of all part of that broader jolly mott massive down there in Melbourne. So, um, but, but all the same, it, there, there is a suspicion already that, that there are things... Um, that, that, that there are shortcomings in the way that, um, trans, that in the degree of transparency that we, that we get in the game. So let, let's just leave that there for the time being. So I'm sure there'll be more uh, on that as we go through the next couple of days because it is a pretty hot story. Let's move to Mumbai. So Ooh. 12 months ago in January 2019, India beat Australia in Sydney and it was the first time that um, they, well, rather, it was a drawn test match, but it was the end of the series where they, they defeated Australia and it was kind of the end of the, the worst possible sort of summer, home summer for Australia and all the rest of it. Um, they went on to, to beat Australia in, in the one-day series as well, 2-1. 12 months on, uh, Australia have inflicted a massacre upon uh, the Indian side, which is, I mean, as comprehensive as any one-day victory that I've ever really seen or, or covered, winning by 10 wickets with whatever it was, 12 and a half overs to spare with Warner and Finch largely doing 
as they pleased, both making comprehensive unbeaten centuries. I mean, you know, this was this wouldn't have been plausible from the Australian side uh, 12 months ago. And I don't just mean with Warner and Smith, by the way, but they, they really have um, they really have advanced. You talked about the stability of the team. That, to a point, is shown in the bowlers that are on this tour. There was a great stat, I think... Possibly Andrew McGlashan might have picked it up on Crick Info that Mitchell Stark hadn't played a one-day international in India since his debut in 2010. So one nearly, of the best one-day international bowlers. That's of all right. Time. Australia have been to India about 74 times for one day as in those 10 years. So you know Stark and Cummins leading the attack. Of course, Kane Richardson part of that squad as well. Um, you've got continuity there, um, much much as it was during during the World Cup. The attack with 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 a couple of small tweaks. So it highlights for me one one massive issue. <laughs> for cricket really which is that there have to be uh, more competitive fixtures out there you know I mean Australia shouldn't have to go and play against India at this stage you know they should be playing one of the top ODI nations like <laughs> New Zealand or, or England um, rather than you know a beaten semi-finalist that clearly isn't good enough you know um, maybe they should have Maybe they should have gone somewhere like uh, I don't know Afghanistan or Bangladesh. Maybe but, maybe we should edit that out, or, or, or your Twitter mention is going to be uh, uh, no, brutal tomorrow. In all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness, I mean, there's a, a part of this is a problem with bilateral ODI series, isn't it? It's a three-match ODI series. India, I think, were tinkering a little bit with their lineup. Uh, one of the interesting things to come out of it is Kohli being at number four, yeah, and how. KL Rahul scoring 70-odd in a partnership of 121 proved that he'd failed. Because if Kohli had been in that situation, he would have got 150. Oh, you know? I felt for Kohli. Like, so Kohli last night after play when he was being interviewed said, like, chill out. He said to the Indian fans, did, chill yeah. out. I'm allowed to try a few things. And he's right to it. It's the end of the World Cup cycle, if you like. We're start, this is a, a three-one-day, a three-game three series in one-day cricket, which won't really be a major focus for a couple of years. The T20 World Cup comes before them, which is clearly the, the focus for the Indian side as they're regrouping following that World Cup semi-final loss. So... Like to the amount of criticism yeah. coming, Coley. I, I saw that the Indian fans were chanting for Dhoni yesterday uh, in the bowling. Oh, you know, like it, it's um, insane. I mean, look, it wasn't calling for not, not calling for his head as much as like well, just and, voicing and a disfac- dissatisfaction with 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 Coley on the basis that um, he didn't bat at number three. I mean, well, you know, take a step Co- back from Coley, this. Coley didn't didn't lose the other nine wickets. I mean, essentially, no. India got an uncompetitive total on that pitch. Uh, in, Australia got everything right. Their bowling is fantastic. I mean, they got Cummins and Stark opening the bowling and that is against the zeitgeist actually to have your test opening bowlers it just speaks to the brilliance of both of those bowlers and you know we know Cummins is going to the IPL for a record amount of money and Australia is blessed by having these exceptionally good bowlers at the moment Um, and Stark does manage to move the old ball I mean we saw him swinging the old ball which he does frequently and he's a real handful and I've already said you know one of the best ODI bowlers of all time Um, it's not Cody's fault that India got bundled out for 250. It is also a bilateral three-match series. They don't come. They don't come much, much more ridiculous than this, do yeah. they? In the middle of the Australian well, summer. Well, I the mean, BBLs on. I mean, you, you, one thing you might look at slightly differently is: w- w- isn't it incredible where world cricket is at? That these are the big three, and you'd think if there's a big three, that would mean that all three—England, Australia, and India—would have some agency in their dealings. But actually, there's a big one because yeah. one of the big three has been forced to take its players out of its marquee tournament. I mean, can you imagine India playing a three-match ODI series uh, towards the, the middle-to-end stage of the IPL, taking 16 yeah. of their best players away from it? Of course not. It's absolutely f- fatuous. It's ludicrous. There ought to have been a better time to, to play these series. 
Um, and well, it may very well be that if they get what they want, which is this big three um, series that they 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 that Sirav Ganguly was talking about a couple of weeks ago, that England will be part of this nonsense and another fourth country on a rotating basis yeah. as we find our way uh, into the next um, WTC cycle. Well, yeah, exactly. Whoever it is, it's kind of neither here nor there. The point is, it'll sit outside the formal ICC one day. Um, championship structure, which so much work's gone into, you know, trying to give one day outside of the World Cup. It's absolutely wrong. It really sticks in my craw, Mm. especially because one day cricket, one day international cricket is going through a sort of golden age for me at the moment. You've got some really interesting teams being interestingly competitive. New Zealand, chief among them. Uh, It's great to see some, you know, other sides also starting to express themselves. Pakistan are in and out, but, you know, India refused to play against them. Uh, England and India and Australia have all got excellent teams, but just having them playing each other every year, I mean, what, what, that, that's just insane, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's just insane. But you can imagine if, if football just stopped and went, right, you know, Brazil, Germany, and I suppose it would be England just because of the money, and Italy played a tournament every year and you know all eyes were on that yeah it, it, it's fatuous yeah it's and, 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 it's, and it's so it was, transparent what's it, going on but, but I mean it was a brilliant it was a brilliant brilliant performance and yeah you know let's talk briefly about Finch and Warner because we're living in two in a golden ages in many different ways we're living in golden ages of ODI opening batsmen and in world fast bowlers and Australia have got both those covered they've got one of the best opening pairings in the world with the highest average against India in India um, they've got 33 one day hundreds between them now it's crazy I mean I'd, I would say that Roy and Bairstow are up there with them over but, but you know they haven't played anything like as many games yep. but if you you take those those two opening partnerships they are absolutely fantastic and they did yesterday something that they kind of threatened to do I was surprised because I'd seen a bit of Finch in the big bash quite a lot and he didn't quite look in good nick to me but I don't know whether it's, the pitch was handy for him. It skidded on under the dew, didn't it? And well, it's, it was... where, it's where they complement each other. So Warner was doing it tough early on, and Finch yeah. took the ascendancy and played a lot through uh, a lot through point, um, and was able to kind of get them off to a bit of a flyer in the first three or four overs. Gave Warner a chance to feel his way into it, and by the time you reached the end of the power play, Warner had overtaken Finch. Finch could take a period of time in the back seat. Like they just know each other's game so well. That's that continuity thing once again. They've been opening the batting together for Australia in, in white ball cricket since 2013, I want to say. Roughly there. Long enough yeah. that they are just a well-oiled machine. So when they're together uh, they're he formidable. He his opening partners, doesn't he, Warner? He does. You know, there's a, a lot of people dislike David Warner, but the, I reckon the people that don't will be the people who actually bat with him. Because he's incredibly generous and sort of yeah. loving. Oh, I know, the way he talks about Joe Burns. I mean, yeah. the, the endorsement he, he's afforded uh, you know, uh, uh, given Burns consistently uh, through the summer reinforces how much he wants him to make it. There's no sort of competitive tension, perhaps because right. he's so far, uh, by far and away, the most important opener in the Australian setup across the various formats. Uh, Marnus Labuschagne, interestingly, was on One Day International debut, and you've got a thanks for coming. DMB, DMB, and uh, I can't imagine there's too many. Um, uh, Australians who've done that in their first one day international and what it did of course meant that Labashain, Labashkagni um, and the reason I use the latter is because that becomes the um, the talking point doesn't it? We heard on television with um, uh, you know the usual suspects um, going through the pronunciation of the name ad nauseum about, about um, Manus uh, and it just sort of reminded me, Jeff touched on this briefly last week but um, this line that's doing the rounds about Manus that he's asked to be called Labashain. That is true, but it's only half of the answer. So this first came up in Dubai 
in 2018 when he made his test debut, which also, I should add, has been completely forgotten. A number of commentators in every game he plays, people are simply saying, oh, when he made his test debut against India at the SCG, as though those two test matches against Pakistan didn't happen, but that's by the by. Um, that's because you were the only one there watching it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fair to say a few few others were as well when uh, Usman Khawaja was playing one of the all-time yeah, modern true. great innings. But anyway, uh, the he did say that. But he also said uh, in those in those same responses that if you want to uh, describe me by uh, the original pronunciation, so the Afrikaans pronunciation, go for gold. You, you do what's best. He's completely chilled out about it. Um, so I, I used to be in the camp that well, we'll, do, we'll just go with Labuschagne because you know why not. But Ma- Michael Slater um, said it best last night. We can get away with Labuschagne in Australia because he's given us that. Um, luxury. Now, shouldn't we look at it the other way? I, 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 I'm, I'm a latecomer to this school of thought, but shouldn't we be looking at it from the perspective that it's not that hard to um, pronounce his name the way that it was before it became Labuschagne, if you like? Shouldn't the responsibility be on broadcasters and those around the game to set an example by doing it the way that everyone else in the world pronounces it? And, like, if people don't want to, they can def- defer to Labuschagne, that's fine. But, I mean, I'm, I'm not the best at pronouncing. I'm the first one to say that when I say Labuschagne probably doesn't sound right, but at least I'm sort of having a pop there. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, we have a thing on TMS where we try to pronounce the names the way they're supposed to be. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. this causes problems. So there's a bloke, uh, Andile. Pelaquao. Well, yeah, and it's not that, unfortunately. <laughs> but, and, and he's been pronounced Pelaquao because that looks easy. It's P-H-E-L, you know, so it looks phonetic. Pelaquao, isn't it? It's Pechlushwayo. Pe- Oh, sorry, right, okay. It's, um, and uh, we tried and tried and tried to get this right. And uh, I, I came one day and said, look, we've got to, got to get this sorted. And we went and found um, him on YouTube saying, my name is Andile Pelushweo, he kept saying. So he said, so Pelushweo, Pelushweo, and then we pronounced it Pelushweo. And then we were informed subsequently that actually he has a slight um, speech problem. Oh, right. And so he was actually pronouncing his own name wrong. So we were pronouncing it the way he was pronouncing it, which would be a bit like us pronouncing, you know, Jonathan Ross's name, Jonathan Wass. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, no, I, I do. Uh, so, I, I... So, you, so you can find yourself in hot water, but I think generally speaking... The principle, the principle of it. The principle yeah, should yeah. be, how is it pronounced? Now, I, And it's not as though this guy's a fly-by-nighter, by the I mean, way. Like, yeah. this guy's going to be around for 10 to 15 years in the Australian team, inevitably, you yeah. think, after the performances he's strung together this let's, home let's summer. Let's make sure that we... Yeah, well, I mean, is it, it is it, yeah, like, that's kind of how I feel. Like, let's give it all. And I agree. I'm not trying to diminish the argument of those that say, but he asked to be called Labuschagne. As I say, that's kind of right. He kind of did. But he didn't dissuade us from doing it the other way if we could. Like, shouldn't we be the ones making the step up rather than accepting... Absolutely. Except that when he first came into the team, as as an Englishman, seeing that he was a South African and being on the the end of a bunch of jibes from Australians about how the entire England team is South African, (laughs) I rather enjoyed calling him Labuschagne because then I could sort yeah, of, you know, yeah. say, oh, well, you've entirely Australia-fired your, your South African. Now, um, now... I think Gideon Haig made a, a, similar, but, um, a similar observation last week that we... Right. Uh, but I, mean, well, yeah. I, but I, I, I actually prefer saying Nabaschachne because it's more fun. Yeah, and, uh, but we can all. The point is, we can all do it if we, we if we want you, to. Yeah, it's not hard. We can all learn it's it. Like it's the, like, it's any, like, like any players. difficult word. Yeah, like, that's a better example. The amount of Sri Lankan players that came to Australia over the years with with 
complicated multisyllabic names and over time the commentators um, conditioned the public to how they were pronounced yeah. them and we and we learnt to, to say them as we went through. So I sort of feel the same way about this and the only reason I'm bringing it up is because it must have been, I don't know, 20 times in that batting innings it was brought up by one commentator or another as he sat there with the pads on waiting to come in in innings he, he never actually got to play. That was the same. My, my, my name is Daniel. And, uh, and, I, and I told all my people that I work with at TMS that my name is Daniel, and I'm constantly introduced as next up is Dan Norcross. So yep. I, I know how Labus Kirchney feels. I'm, uh, I'm slightly taken aback by that. I've known you for a really long time, and I don't think I've called you Daniel more than a couple of times. You no. probably should have told me at some point, D- well, Daniel. you never asked. No, that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steve Smith... Uh, uh, um, uh, Manus's best mate didn't yep. get to bat in that game either. I'll just note that, um, and he would have hated that, that the uh, Amazon uh, documentary, I'm going to call it, although I am reluctant to necessarily get uh, invest too deeply in that term given that it's an in-house production. Alas, the, 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 the film that's been made of the Australian team uh, from... Um, over the last 12 to 18 months, whatever it is, uh, is going to be on Amazon soon. The behind-the-scenes uh, shots and all that that, are, um, that have been pulled together. Uh, and this teaser they put on from Lords, Archer versus Smith, that is awesome. It does look rather chasey. I mean, is, we were there. We, was, well, yeah, we were very, I mean, very lucky to be watching it, it together. And, but the, yeah, the, those behind-the-scenes shots that... Andre Morga, who's been uh, with us on the press side of the uh, of the of the pack, and now he uh, works on the uh, on the inside CA side filming. Um, he, the shots he's got are just incredible. So I can't wait to see that in full flight. So if you get a chance to jump on Twitter and, and see that, do so. Uh, so Smith and Archer, I mean, great day of, of Test cricket, but but they've done a wonderful job in assembling that. So uh, there's two more one day internationals in India. One in Rajkot. On Friday, on Sunday, the series concludes then, as you say, Dan, they'll be back in Australia for the Big Bash. Uh, and I think that's probably the right time for us to, to move from international cricket to some frivolity, to some nerd pledge. We don't have Jeff with us, but as Jeff would always say, nerd pledge is the game you can play with us through our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the final word, if you're wondering. Uh, it's where... And people who listen to the show and subscribe to the show can, can jump on and uh, via their amount per episode they choose to give us kindly. Uh, it has some sort of cricket relevance and we'll try and decipher the number. You know, of course, all about this, Dan, having played Nerd Pledge Quiz oh, with yeah. us before through the English summer. So we've got three numbers uh, to go through today and try and get to the bottom of. The first of which is two thirty. One, so $2.31, but 231 uh, That's from Nairon Clunas, I see here. So uh, Nairon Clunas, of course, is, is the, the Dulwich Hamlet number seven. He scored more <laughs> goals for the club than anyone else. The King of Camberwell, um, he's been going brilliantly this year. Mostly playing off the bench now. He's been at the club for more than 10 years. He's a great man. So if you are a Dulwich Hamlet, um, I, I assume um, it's not the great Nye himself. Um, it's probably another Dulwich fan. We are not far from Dulwich here. We are, we are not, we're no, in Tooting, no, no. So. I've always come with you one day. It sounds great. Yeah, well, one of our rivals is Tooting and Mitchum. Yeah, my, my um, team. And Tooting and Mitchum are the club that hosted us when when uh, when that big bad property developer from America nearly shut the club down a couple of years ago. We were playing our home games down this way, down in down in uh, uh, Tooting and Mitchum's home turf. But uh, Nairon Clunas has, uh, has sent us 231. So my initial thing was to have a quick glance at the cap numbers before we jumped on it. Uh, Ian Chappell was the 231st Australian man to play test cricket. So that's not a bad starting point, someone who's been on the final word. Any advance on that, Norky? 
Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that immediately occurred to me when I heard 231. It's, it's uh, certainly the highest score, individual score, divisible by 77 made in a test match. The, hang on, uh, go again, the highest? the highest score divisible by 77 <laughs> uh, made in a test match, 231. Um, there's never been a 308 and there's never been a 385 and there's certainly never been a 462. So, um, yeah, right, so there's been a 307, of course, Bob Cowper. There's been a 307 and there's been a 309, but there's been no 308. Okay. Uh, but then I, it got me thinking, Dudley Who's North, the 309? Uh, 309 is Saywag. Saywag, yep. Yeah, yeah. That's it, yep. So we're 231. Dudley Norse got 231. And what was fascinating about his 231 was that at the time, it was the highest score made by somebody who had made a duck in his first innings. Right, so it was a second innings double ton. I believe so, yeah. Second innings double ton. When are we talking here? When was Dudley Norse? 1934-ish, I want to say. Oh, right. Around about then. That's that's pretty close to... That's very good. And look, I hope that's where Niran Clunas's head was at when he... 231 and through. a duck, yeah. That that's very good. But it, kind of the reverse of that is Wally Hammond's unbeaten 231 at Sydney in 1936 where he, he made 231 out of England's you know, squillion and then they bowled out Australia for 80 when they batted for the first time. So there's, oh. there's a bit of symmetry between Can't those be two. many times that somebody's got nearly three times as many in one innings, in their own innings... As, than the next uh, innings, the, yeah. the whole team has got. That's kind of a real... They st- they're, they're real Samson areas, aren't they? If we had Andrew Definitely. Samson sitting with us, he could look it up in a matter of moments, but we don't have his database with us yeah, today. Yeah, it's kind of like... It's like a kind of like opposition bannerman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we also got the great Vinu Mancad. Uh, he made 231 against New Zealand. His famous double turn at the top of the list known for all the wrong reasons, Vinu, but yeah. a, a final rounder in his own right. I think he he has uh, yeah a double ton opening the batting, and I think I'm right in saying he bowled the longest or the most amount of overs ever in a, in a test match, or came close to that. He bowled, um, he, he bowled in one innings, yeah. he bowled in excess of 100 overs or something like that he with did, his off spin. Because it's, it's uh, Ramadan and Valentine has got a, a record of a similar time. In 1957, when they bowled an, an absolute squillion overs at, at Colin Cowdery yeah, and Edgebast yeah. and padding it away, which sort of caused a, a change in the LBW Yes, law. indeed it did. Right, so we've got Vinu Mankad, 231, Hammond, 231, Ian Chappell's cap number, maybe it's Inspector Moores. All of them made uh, 231. I had a 231 involved. Thank you, Nairon Clunas, the King of Camberwell. We move on to six. 54 from Lucas Stewart. Thank you so much, Lucas. That's very kind of you. I'll just start by saying it's Nick Compton's test number, the comp dog. Um, He's a lucky man. Yeah, we often see, I was going to say to you, to begin, we often see his name, when we go through England openers, of course, Dom Sibley, um, so magnificent at Newlands last week, but when you you look at the list of openers who've been unsuccessful for England since the Cook-Strauss partnership uh, ended in, in August 2012... Compton, I've, I've pondered this. Yeah, Compton is a player who you look at and you think, well, gee, he probably should have had a better run the first time. Well, you know his problem, and, and, and actually most of the openers around that time, their problem is that uh, they came off the back of a hugely successful England batting lineup, yeah. which is something that we forget, having not really seen much in the way of successful England batting lineup for quite a while. So off the back of Strauss, Cook, Bell, Peterson, um, Collingwood, Collingwood yeah. um, Pryor, then the problem is that incredibly Compton, stable batting lineup as well. Yeah. So when Compton came in, and he didn't look anything like as good as that, and he didn't have the dynamism, and he was feeling his way in Test cricket, any sort of mistake, any kind of you know, twenty-eight runs per hundred ball, forty-five, was seen as an example of how you know he's not quite up to Test cricket because England have been spoiled. Forgetting that, of course, you know, Ian Bell had to have 
fair bit of time in the game before he yep. knew his own game and uh, what have you. It's not just you know, Strauss and Cook arrived at the top of the order and they they hit the straps running, didn't they? They got hundreds early on in their careers and uh, and they looked the part instantly. Whereas for Compton, it didn't really happen for him. And now you sort of feel that if Compton was six, seven years old or younger, he'd be yeah. nailed on top of the order frankly because England now realises desperately what they do actually need is some sort of deep ball bugger yeah ma- and maybe look at maybe maybe with, with Dom Sibley they've, they've got uh, a player that yeah, could, might, yeah, could play that, that kind of longer, early, longer early term days, role yeah. early, early days, days yeah. early days so it feels as though um, if he can bat with with Rory Burns for a period of time yeah. they, they might have stumbled upon something there the other one the only other number that I came upon in this is that and I think this came up at lunch the other day I don't know why we were talking about it actually I do know why we were talking about it Colin Milburn made 654 test runs we were we were, we were doing our mock 11 of players who didn't um, get to play in the in the T uh, twenty era, who'd yeah. be in our T twenty side, and I suggested that Milburn might have been a a, a viable candidate for, for such a composite eleven. But um, tragic case, and it's yeah. great, there's a great play written about him. You see this? As yeah. A, now I've I, never I, seen I, it. No, I've never seen it. But Matthew Engel told me about it. Um, this is great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, if, if it's still going on somewhere, and uh, someone can tell us, we'd love to go and see. Hard hitting opening batsman. If you're not familiar with him, and there's there's many reasons why he wouldn't be. Uh, late sixties, early seventies. Uh, played in that nineteen sixty eight test match or test series against Australia. He, was, yeah. uh, he bowled some of his... Um, he, I think he took a wicket on the final day when they got the pitch up he at the Oval when, the, yeah. when he running in. I think he would have been he would have been well over 100 kilos, probably even more than... Oh, he's a big lad. Even big then. Big lad. Had a car crash, lost sight in one eye. It uh, massively affected his, his form. And, uh, well, as, as it would do. <laughs> yeah. Cricket's <laughs> difficult enough with two eyes, yep. let alone one. Uh, but, yeah, he was, he was spectacular. Top-order hitter. Sad story. Is there any other? Safe I've got look? a six for fifty. Oh, yeah. well, it feels like bowling figures, that doesn't it? I've, I've, no, yeah, I've dated so. two batsmen, but where, where are you going with it? Well, I'm going to go with somebody that should unite my Australian cousins with my English <laughs> cousins. I, I, I straddle you both of you <laughs> by pretending. Of course, because your because your, your grandfather, of course, was an Anzac, so you can say that. I can, yeah. Uh, John Ferris, JJ Ferris, yes, the great JJ. Played Ferris. for both. Played for both. Took six for fifty-four for England against South Africa. In nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, I want to say. Yep. And he played his last test, or maybe it was eighteen ninety two. He played his last test in eighteen ninety two, three. At a very young age, like he was about twenty five, twenty six, died, aged thirty three, having signed up to fight in the Boer War. Died of, I think, pneumonia or tuberculosis. I thought he died in the war, so obviously I've got that I wrong. Think he so died, well, I think he, he may have died in it, but you know, but but okay, of, of right, sickness. right. Uh, but he took 60-odd wickets in nine games. A stupid average. I want yeah. to say, like, 14. It's one of those stats that... Well, it's one of those numbers that will never be eclipsed. I mean, you've got yeah. the sort of... Uh, yeah, the, the so Ferris George Barnes, Lohman style. Lohman. Yeah, yeah, they're all in the same yeah. bracket, aren't they? Yeah. You know, the, uh, the, the, Terrific uh, moustache. Played for both teams. But the fact that he played for both teams by the age of 25 is really impressive to me. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that takes some going. Yeah, they're, 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 I mean, there have been a handful of players that have been able to sort of straddle and, and do... Both uh, there's a book about Murdoch last year, of course, who who yeah. who, who did both uh, and died at the MCG. Rick Sissons. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, he died of a heart attack watching a test match at the MCG, albeit at age seventy something. But Rick Sissons wrote wrote the biography a couple of years ago, I think it was, and I've I, I haven't ploughed through the whole thing. I should have, but yes. So there's there's, there's a few notable examples of Kepler vessels and other yes, who played course, for yeah, played Kepler. for both. Well, South you know, you got your, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh God! We, 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 ran we talked about it on. Day. There's a we did it on the, the BBC social the other day. Did during John Tricost do it because he played for 
for Zimbabwe and for South Did Africa. For I reckon South he Africa. may have done both. This came up when we were talking about South African Englishmen who'd played for both yeah. and Zoltzman on the social went through, found a whole a whole series of them and for whatever reason I can't can't find them in my brain right now. Well. Yeah, well Carter played for both. Yeah. He was the he was an Indian. He played for India then of course captain Pakistan when they um, came uh, into test cricket. So yeah. there'll, there'll be a few there too. Anyway, for another day. So that might be Oh no, hang on. We'll do one more. So thank you Lucas Stewart. Maybe we maybe we found it through JJ Ferris or Colin Milburn or Nick Compton. Maybe we didn't. If we didn't, drop us a line and let us know and Last but absolutely not least, Mark Bagworth, 207. We, we've had 207 before. So in my notes, I've got, of course, Mike Gadding at Madras, mm. Nasser Hussain at Edgebaston. Both of um, those Ma- I had in and, my head. And Nasser's, of course, still, I think I'm right in saying that the, the, the score of 200, or the, the, the double 100 rather, so no one's made more runs than this with as many boundaries, as many runs in boundaries. Is that right? Yes. Because you don't think of... Nasser Hussain has been that. Yes, but Especially because that... you think of the fast double hundreds as being, say, Ben Stokes, Nathan Astle, yeah, Graham yeah. Thorpe. Yeah, Graham same Thorpe. Same game as the Astle game. But yeah, that's a, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think... It, like they're, they're, between the yeah, there yeah. are qualifiers. Like, it's, no one has made more than 207 or something, whatever right. it is, or it might be. Um, but, but either way, I know that that definitely is a feature, a fixture, or was a fixture, rather, of, of that innings uh, to start the 97 Ashes series. Keith Stackbowl's 100 at 207 at, at Sydney in, in 1970-71, where he was run out by so far, they managed to get a photo of him run out by about three metres. I bet wasn't given. And then he wasn't, wasn't given. given. <laughs> well, that was, of course, the season where England didn't get a single LBW in the whole, whole Ashes series. So, not entirely um, surprising. Uh, 207, Dan, where, where were you going with this? Well, I was going with Gatting because instantly what came to mind was, uh, strangely, was Graham Fowler. Because Graham Fowler scored Foxy? double hundred. Exactly, he scored double hundred in the same innings. Did he really? Yeah. I didn't know that Foxy yeah. got a test double time. Yeah, I didn't know that. feeling it might have been his last test innings. Right. He got injured after that. And then the South African rebel tourists came back. Gooch came back. And outrageously, Foxy was overlooked. He had a, he had a, a, a long-term neck injury that hasn't been diagnosed. and uh, So he had a couple of years out or a year out. And then he came back and didn't have quite the same form. But yeah, he's got a double hundred in the same innings. And he, he says a story about that innings that... Gatting was at one end and Foxy had opened the batting so on the first day he was absolutely drained it was Madras boiling hot you know they were completely out of, of fluids and um, he, he always loves Gatting for the fact that Gatting deliberately patted out the last six balls of the day didn't even look to get a run because he'd looked up and he saw Foxy at the other end and Foxy was basically asleep standing up <laughs> he was like leaning towards the umpire and his eyes had gone and you know he had nothing, nothing left in the tank. So Gatling just went, OK, I'll just knock these Get down in front of me and go and gently usher Foxy off the pitch you know? <laughs> uh, for, for bonus content we might at some point get Dan maybe next week we'll, we'll get you to go through the Foxy Fowler um, is it kinetic Okay, uh, kinesis. Kinesis, sorry. Yeah. Kinesiology. Kinesiology. kinesiology we, yeah. we won't do it today because it's actually quite a complicated experiment, it is, but it's yeah. one worth going through at a later date. So thank you, Mark Bagworth. That is the end of their pledge. Before we um, cut to the break, I'll just add that we want to do more for our patrons as we work our way through 2020. So if you're a subscriber on the Patreon account, please drop us a line or send us a tweet. Of course, Jeff Lemon Sport, Colin Zadam, 
Uh, there's the final word, uh, the final word cricket at gmail.com email account. If you're on a patron already, you can send us a direct message as well. Let us know um, what you want from us in 2020. In addition to the podcast, we're very open minded to that. If you want to be part of it, it'd be great to have you part of our family, patron.com forward slash the final word. If you want to know the history of the final word, by the way, I did an interview during the week with a podcast called the North South podcast. A, a young chap by the name of Darren wanted to do, do an interview with, with me on, on how did the final word start and, and about podcast. So if you've just found the show by happenstance or whatever it is and you don't know anything about what Jeff and I do, um, you can jump on the North South podcast and hear about it there. It's come to something when we got so old that it's now the history of what you're actually doing now. I know. I, I was I, mean, I was staggered when he said, I want to go on and talk about the start of the final word. So we're going back to 2014, 2013, 14, yeah. uh, quite a while now. Yeah, we've, we've, been, we've been going for a while. But anyway, that is indeed no pleasure. That is the end of, of part one. Back in a tick. My name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Dan, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, an organisation you know well, I know well, you're all, you're one of the you're one of the board of directors or something, aren't you? Well, I would editorial, like, editorial board. Editorial board. Yeah, there's no responsibility in any of this. But what <laughs> no it, fiduciary responsibility. No, <laughs> no what it kind of means is that they, that they, uh, they get hold of you and say, oh, can you send us 200 words on some news story that's come up that month, you know, like four-day test matches or something, and then not pay you for it. I, I, uh, I, I, <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of the key part of being on the editorial board. But I, I love it, actually. And I'm running late for my 200 words on four-day tests, by the way. You've prompted me to have to go and file it this afternoon. You'll read about four-day test matches in the next edition of the magazine, which you can, being a Final Word subscriber, access for a ridiculously cheap offer. We've been talking about it the last few weeks on the show. £5.99 or 10 Australian dollars will get you six editions of the magazine through the tablet online version of it, which is more than fine in this day and age, of course. You'll be able to read some of the best cricket writing in the world. All the biggest issues in the game are covered month to month, as, as the name would suggest, being Wisdom yep. Cricket Monthly. Um, in the next edition, there's going to be, for English readers, a roundtable on the 100. Of course, we're going to have that coming our way later this year. Um, there's a piece from Ralph Nicholson on the state of the women's game in the UK. Of course, Ralph's just releasing a book on the history of women's cricket They're in the UK. They're very strong on women's cricket, uh, women's cricket month. I mean, one, of the first things, one of the first things I loved about the magazine when I first started writing for it is that you see tons of women's content as well yeah. and around the world. So Raf writing a, a column on, on the state of the English game is... The is, cover had Elise Perry in the middle it did. between, was it Ben Stokes and somebody else? Yeah, yeah, you're right. There, there, there was three players in the three front to end like 2019, Elise See, Perry. The fact was, I can't remember the two male players yeah. is, is testament to how what a good job Wisdom Cricket Monthly does on that. In no small part due to magazine editor and editor-in-chief Phil Walker. The latter has written a piece on corruption in cricket, which is something we always need to be vigilant about. Um, I have a column to, to pen on Manus Labash Kagni, which uh, I will do. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I, I, I have to, to sort of work out where I'm going with it, but I assure you it'll be... Um, from from it'll be from from deep in deep in my brain. I'll be going a long way back to try and tell the story of, of Manus uh, over the next couple of days in time for the deadline. Um, uh, we were with Ellie Oldroyd the other day, Dan, um, who wrote a lovely piece uh, in the magazine last month about her early origins of the game in Shropshire. Well, Ellie Ellie was brought up in and around Shropshire. As those of you who don't know, maybe Australians aren't so familiar with her work. She's a really big broadcaster. She's not very really big, she's about five foot one, but she's, <laughs> she's, uh, she's a very, very accomplished, uh, quite a fantastic broadcaster who works with the Test Match Special Team 
for our sister station Five Live. So she does updates and keeps people involved, does lots of interviews in and around the game, and she appears on the programme uh, frequently. And her first passion was cricket. And when she first started being a, uh, a sports reporter straight out of university, she was based in Shropshire, and Shropshire is a minor county in England. So there's you know, the, the quality of cricket was not as high as it would be uh, in the major first-class counties, and it was massively underreported minor counties cricket. But when she started, without giving her age away, there was a lot more content actually available in, in local newspapers and local radio. So she started, she was working in local radio, and she followed the Shropshire men's team around for a year, so it cut her teeth on that. And her passion for it, her passion for that summer when she was a, a young girl, really, I mean, 22, 23... Um, and being a woman involved in sports reporting, we sort of take it for granted. We shouldn't because we still have to read and endure the um, Neanderthal tendencies. I always think that's a nasty word on the Neanderthals because, I mean, actually, we wipe them out. We should be a bit nice, <laughs> nicer to Neanderthals, but you know what I mean, you know. Um, antediluvian uh, tendencies of some people, but uh, in those days, you know, Ellie was an outrider. Uh, I mean, she still is in many ways, but being 23 and being a woman reporting on cricket yeah. there were not many of them about and she's she's not one of these people who'll you know make you feel guilty about stuff and tell you it's all men's fault that uh, that she struggled in life far from it she's a very inspiring presence and her her tales of that summer are delightful and charming and um look if it's helped make her the broadcaster she is today then good for minor counties cricket i neglected to mention off the top of this stand of course to access this wonderful offer bit.ly so if you're listening to a podcast you know what a bit.ly is forward slash WCM final so Wisdom Cricket Monthly final that's the URL you don't need to put in any offer code or anything like that just go to the website we'll have it in the show notes so whenever you're whatever platform you're listening to this edition of the, of the final word on jump on click the link and you'll be through to Wisdom Cricket Monthly's offer six quid or ten bucks gets you it's six nothing. editions that is an absolute steal the best cricket magazine in the world it's Wisdom Cricket Monthly we're proud to be associated with them on the final word bit.ly forward slash WCM final I'm Barney Douglas director of The Edge you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff what a show This is the final word. Adam Collins is sitting in South London with Daniel Norcross. And tomorrow, a very big test match for the England national men's team. I feel like we say that quite a bit with the England side. They seem to sort of move from one massive series to another. But South Africa and England have a great history against each other since readmission. Very close series, often beating each other away from home and so on. And this is another opportunity for England after winning completely against the odds, if you like, in Newlands with an understaffed side hit by injury and by illness and getting over the line in that kind of classic, wasn't it? Um, they're, they're moving on to Port Elizabeth, a famous test venue in its own right, the, the St George's Park Band, so many wonderful memories of hearing them play over the years and, and they'll be doing so uh, in, in this third test match. They'll have no Jack Leach at their disposal. He, we found out yesterday, had sepsis uh, in like New Zealand. I mean, he's been... I mean, How unlucky is he? Yeah, he's a sickly looking fellow with all respect to Jack but I mean, he's really copped it over the last um, couple of tours. There's a bit of um, so I said before to you, a bit of Eddie Painter yeah. and the idea of dragging him out of his hospital bed from the... He reminds me of Edward the Sixth, the sickly <laughs> king, the son of Henry VIII. Uh, it, it's, 
I, I, I really, really feel for him because... <laughs> who, who studied classics at Oxford in this room? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's, but he's, he's such a kind of... Uh, he become, just as he's become a folk hero and also just as he's getting his place in the side, it's not easy for spinners in England. They don't, we don't produce the right conditions for them and this has been talked about ad nauseam, so I don't need to go over it. But just to the point when you know, he's come off the back of a really promising summer and then sepsis I mean that is terrible don't forget he has Crohn's disease yeah. which affects his immune system England have gone on a tour in South Africa in which 11 players have come down with this illness and Jack Leach has understandably copped it worse because he's got you know a, a compromised immune system then they've lost two players who are among the only ones not to have come down with this disease yeah, Burns and Burns Anderson, and Anderson. Mm. so they go for completely different reasons it's been a nightmare tour uh, but yeah, it, it might be a nightmare too. But they're going there, and you you'd probably yeah. say they've got the wind at their back. Well, you would do. I mean, I mean, there's a couple, competition couple for things. spots in the side. A couple of things to bear in mind here. I mean, firstly, England have got a really young team, and England fans are like all fans. They are they're not very gracious or understanding of circumstance and how the wheel turns in sport. They kind of assume that if you're good, you should just go on being good. But, you know, as Australians will testify, they, they had a period a couple of years back when they just shoved a whole load of debutants in and playing against yep. South Africa. And uh, you go through these phases, especially when injury and illness hits you. So England had gone into that side where um, Sam Curran was one of a whole bunch of under 23-year-olds. Curran, Crawley, Ollie Pope. Sibley. Dom Sibley. I mean, and they were on the slips calling at the end too, yeah, weren't they? And Dom Bess. Yeah, Dom Bess. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, you've got a, almost, I'm not going to say a development team, because there probably is the strongest 11 they could put out, but they're a really young team and they're going through this massive transition at the moment. And all of, they put all their eggs into the one-day basket. Then they hope that they could take from that basket. I don't want to go on with this metaphor too much, but, you know, <laughs> go, well, look, Jason Roy's done really well as a world World Cup winner we're going to open the batting with him they briefly forgot all the principles of selection and you know who's right for playing a test match and who's right for playing a white ball game which Australia's selectors have also done in the past you know viz that series against South Africa yeah. South African series are always brilliant from, from an England point of view I don't think it's the same when South Africa play everyone else but for some reason England play South Africa and they've, they've each won I think four home and four away since South Africa's readmittance there have been like three drawn series. No series has really been one steamrollered. I mean, I think there were a couple of three ones, but they were 2 1 going into the final test. Yep, 2012 um, one of those. England captains get trauma when they arrive, when they play South Africa, because they frequently start it with great hopes and end it having resigned, like Strauss mm. and Michael Vaughan. And we were wondering after the first test if that was going to be the fate of Joe Root, because there was an awful lot of. Um, I focus, I guess, on Root's captaincy. He's gone through a pretty tough time out in the field, um, had a tough time against Australia, but then losing the series against New Zealand, and he lost in the West Indies at the start of the year. So England had gone through this phase of not having won a series for for what feels like quite a while, even though Sri Lanka was only just over a year ago. So coming back at Cape Town and winning that game was incredibly impressive, but it was founded on what most impressive on a full team performance you know you look through that match and England will feel that they gave it away in the first innings were it not for Ollie Pope with a unbeaten 60 odd in there in that first innings or did, did he get out no I think he was unbeaten in the end wasn't he 
Um, yeah, Anderson was and last out. Well, I wanted to touch on that as well, actually. I mean, the team effort thing. Yeah. I mean, the we, and we went through the, the test last week, so we won't revisit that too much. But with Anderson going down, I don't think we even mentioned Jimmy's seven for 70-odd yeah. match figures or whatever it worked out to be. He's missing from this test, thankfully. With a thankfully. broken rib. Yeah, well, you Where know did what? that come from? Well, Chris Tremlett, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> going back in time a wee bit. No, the, the, the Anderson uh, arc, if you like, you know, having missed the entirety of the Ashes with the exception of four overs at Edgebaston, uh, then uh, getting injured uh, again when he was trying to get back. Yeah, he came, yeah trying, trying to get, uh, that, he, that he did the calf again. Did the calf a second time. Then he doesn't get picked for the New Zealand series. Probably fair enough, given they were trying to give Absolutely. him every opportunity to be ready here. Plays the first test. Nearly gets dropped. He only really survived. I mean, maybe he would have um, maybe he would have stayed in the side, but Archer missing out yep. confirmed that he got a Guernsey. Not only are the seven wickets, and you know, because he didn't bowl on the last day. Well, sorry, he did take a wicket on the final day, but at the very end, he wasn't able to sort of yep. make the contribution Stokes was able to. He also was important to that inning, as you mentioned, from Ollie Pope in the first dig. He, they put on 35 or something for the final wicket, which ended up being sort of crucial runs. Well, this um, is a well, maybe not crucial runs, but as far as what having a lead to build on the second time around. This is that the Jimmy Anderson bats below Stuart Broad. I mean, look, I don't, and this is not a personal thing, but because Stuart Broad's got dozen 50-plus scores, including a 169, there's still this assumption that he's still got it in him to bat. Well, he doesn't. I mean, his shot to get out in the first innings was yeah, absolutely yeah. hilarious. His bat just like clattered into the top of his pad. And for whatever reason, his batting is all over the place. Jimmy Anderson actually still knows how to block at one end. He, he does. And gives the opportunity for the... the yeah, and, and, and look, the reason I was doing that whole preamble was to kind of ask you, that, uh, put to you maybe, that that may have been Anderson's final test away from home. I'm sure he'll play here next year. Um, there, there's no reason why he won't go around for another home summer. Very different story whether he'll go on the winter tour next year. And then I suppose he said that he's interested in, in playing in Australia one last time, given that he's been, what, on four occasions. He's very keen. He's, he was very keen yeah. a couple of years back. Well, a winner in 10-11, but of course lost in, he played in the losing side in 6-7 and um, the whitewash of 13-14. And then last time it was, what, a 4-0 result. Yeah. So he's, he's had overall a, a bad time of it in Australia with the exception of that excellent um, return in 10-11. In so he wants to get there. He'll be... 40, 39, 39, 30, 39 coming up to 40. Coming up to 40. I mean, there's no reason, looking how fit he is, that he couldn't do that. But the, the other side of that ledger is, is that, you know, it's not entirely unreasonable that these injuries will pile up and it might force the end of his career before yeah, that. Of course. I mean, look, it's, we're already looking at somebody who's played more test matches as a bowler than anyone else. I think bowler, seam or spin, actually, 150... Yeah, 151 there. And look, you know, and you can look at his record away from home and, you know, from time to time you see fuckwits on the internet sort of criticise Anderson because of his record away and and they diminish him accordingly. But um, we know that... um, Well, his recent record away is good. Of course it is. I mean, you know... this is 27 with 200 on Yeah, you're going to get this sort of gibber on. You can't can't avoid it when it comes to um, to players like Anderson who have been Marmite with their personality, I suppose. But he... um, yeah, it does pose an interesting question about his future. On, on, on the plus side for England, though, with Anderson going out um, at this point of the tour, Archer's fit again. Um, so it could be a, a, a... We assume it's Archer, but as we were saying off air, it could easily be I'm, Mark I'm, Wood. And Mark Wood didn't yeah. play any cricket before he bowled out the West Indies at St Lucia, at, you know, the better part of 95 mile an hour, what was this time last year, a spell with, that Shield Berry, who's covered more test cricket than anyone ever, has said is the fastest he's ever seen anyone bowl for England. So yeah, it's not, not a terrible option. It's not a, it's not a terrible option, but it is a really bizarre thing, isn't it, that they might consider leaving Archer out. I mean, I saw Mike Selby tweeting that he would... He said, yeah, are they really considering leaving Archer out? If he's fit, then... 
you sort of think Shorty's got to play NASA. Sane wrote an interesting piece in the in the Mail about how uh, England sometimes struggle with. I'm not going to call him a maverick talent, but you know, a talent that expresses itself in different kind of ways. You know, we saw him fielding with his jumper tied round his waist. Yep. I love that kind of stuff. I love the fact that he'll warm up for a Test match by bowling left arm spin. I love very that. good left arm wrist spin too, yeah. by the way. <laughs> Look, he just loves the game so much that I, I think it, you want to encourage that enthusiasm because if you love what you're doing, you'll do it really well. But I would be disappointed if they left him out for Wood, even though I think Wood's a fantastic player. England have got a bit of a problem, which is that the balance of their side, they don't want to leave out Broad, and for good reason. He's bowling as well as he has done in a long time at the moment. Um, they've got Stokes in there, and he's proven that he's bowling fit because of what he did in Cape Town. And then they really, really struggle to leave out Sam Curran for really obvious reasons because he's played 15 test matches in England, have won 10 of them, only lost four. He gets wickets in ways that you don't quite understand. He's had 25 wickets, or is it 20 wickets in his last five games? He gives you the potential with the bat. He always seems to play the clutch moments. I, mean, I saw, I think Barney Ronay describe him today as somebody who is an episodic player. So he finds the right moment in the game. To, to make the difference, to make the change. And yet, if you were sort of saying, what do you want for a Port Elizabeth pitch that might be a little slow, you'd probably say, I want Wood and Archer. Well, they might. And, and, and you know, we've seen in Port Elizabeth in the past, there's re- it tends to reverse swing there. Um, Dale Stain famously a couple yeah. of years ago, maybe four or five years ago now, bowled Australia out with the ball hooping massively, and he did it a handful of times across his sort of decorated career so that might increase the case for Archer and Wood and remember Wokes is there as well and Root's been talking him up so yeah. they've got a number of the options batting, the batting struggles but, but does it if, yeah. if Wokes were to come in for Sam Curran I mean it's unlikely but just observing but you can't that, play Wokes you probably can't but I Archer, guess Wood. It, it is interesting though that they're in this situation right now where, yeah. where they're despite all the illness and injury and so forth that they do seem to have quite a few options when, when it comes to their bowling stocks just you mentioned the, the Archer um, perception if you like uh, Mark Butcher on, on, on the talk sport coverage was big on this on the final day. He had a journalist panel and he couldn't have been more forthright in the way that he sees the way that Archer has been covered. He wasn't, he was, his questions, there wasn't a lot of um, mm. nuance in them and I don't mean that negatively. I mean that no, he was no, quite no. forthright in the way that he, that he um, asserted that, that he thinks the way that Archer has been covered is influenced by other factors. But um, I, 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 I agree with him entirely and I'll say this because I, I witnessed his first poor spell of bowling was at Old Trafford this year against... Australia and anybody who was at that game who had a, a shred of cricket understanding knew that bowling with a 65 mile per hour crosswind crosswind was terrible was, it was horrible it was horrible to bat I mean it, the, you know, I'm not taking anything away from the Australians you know their bats were wobbling you couldn't lift them properly it was a disgusting bowlers, day yeah it was horrible and the bowlers as they ran in they were being buffeted sideways yep and you know bowling is a very precise eye if your hand moves ever so slightly in one direction it makes a massive difference all the way down the pitch to the other direction so these were really difficult conditions and the bowler that got attacked for you know can he really handle it as we say in football parlance on a wet Wednesday yeah, in Stoke yeah. is Joffre Archer now you may think that that was uh, merely coincidental that he happens to have spent you know quite a lot of his time playing cricket in Barbados I don't um, because he's also played an awful lot of his cricket in Sussex where they do have crosswinds and it is difficult and I bet you anything he and all the bowlers find it difficult to bowl there as well and it's not that he hasn't got the ticker for it it's not that he's not up for it it's that sometimes conditions to bowl in are absolutely terrible so yeah, we have to well. ask ourselves why do we single out Jofra Archer for the criticism on that day rather than 
other people and I think if we're honest with ourselves then there might be other factors at work. Yeah, I, I feel obliged to note the, the, the amazing reporting uh, on, on Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton uh, yes, during the week. Well, I'm sure you said it on Twitter as well. But anyway, <laughs> I, I digress. Yeah, but I, I, I will say though that the, the, the racist in New Zealand who, who got, that uh, was at Bay Over, wasn't it? Who got yeah. a, a two-year suspension uh, which, fair play to Cricket New Zealand yeah. for finding the person, um, going through the process and, and issuing a ban. I know some people would have liked to have seen a life ban and, um, and, I'm, and I'm sympathetic to that argument, but the fact that there was a ban, it was only 12 months ago that there was a, a white supremacist banner brought into Perth Stadium and Cricket Australia didn't, didn't ban the people in question. So, yeah, and, and nor did the stadium and nor did the police act on it when it was, uh, when it was a, yeah, it was a, literally a white supremacist banner um, that was brought into a big bash fixture. So, uh, good work for Cricket New Zealand showing some leadership easily, there. They could have forgotten about this, couldn't they? Because no one would have talked about it again. No. But no, would have gone under, it would have gone under the radar by that stage. Um, something that definitely wasn't under the radar last week. So we didn't really get a chance to talk about it, but we'll touch on it very, very briefly. It was, was Joss, but- Joss Butler and the uh, <laughs> and the stump mic um, hullabaloo. Now Butler uh, copped the, the you know I think it was the the, the standard fifteen percent fine, and he said his apologies and, and all the rest of it. And there was the debate around stump mic, which we're fairly conditioned to now. I saw one conspiracy theorist on the internet saying that um, it was it was Super Sports fault. Um, oh, turning a, it up a bit, of course. The the, the stuff on the live broadcast, so it's kind of hard to <laughs> bolster the argument that it was a super sport conspiracy when it was uh, on the live coverage. But people will, will have their fun. But um, uh, uh, Joss, of course, um, has found himself not only at the start of the week he's you know copying it from all angles, and you know the criticism was reasonable that he uh, on two fronts: one that you know you've got to be held accountable for saying those sorts of things, and two, how fucking stupid is it saying it in front of the stump mic? <laughs> Do what every other cricketer does: wait till the end of the over and go to the middle of the pitch where no one can hear. Yeah. And um, but he's ended the week um, on the front of the Winston Almanac. We saw that we saw the good book uh, oh, yeah. came out yesterday, and the iconic image of of 2019. So to be absolutely clear, um, the way that the, the, the decisions made around the cover, and I've written about this the last couple of years, it isn't about the player of the year or anything like that. So when people um, had a massive tantrum over Anya Shrubsoul being on the cover two years ago, going, "Well, hang on, you know, X, Y, and Z had a bigger year than Anya," it was because of the moment of 2017 yeah. was, was that World Cup um, finale at Lords, and much is, is the same for for Butler as far as the last year's. Um, iconic moment, if you like, was the the end of the dramatic yeah. super over, and, and as a result, uh, he, he is he is there, and I, I'd say that's a pretty pretty good decision. It's, it is a good decision. I mean, yeah, it could have been Stokes, by the way. Could easily have been Stokes. It could have been Stokes. It could have been Stokes at the, at the end of Headingley with his arms yeah. outstretched. Of course, it could. Yeah. But you know, England went on not to regain the ashes, and as a result, it was a great innings and a great moment. But the moment that's sort of transformative from an England cricket point of view has to have been winning the World Cup at Lords in the most extraordinary game. It wasn't that image is not really just about Joss Butler breaking the stumps. It's that we were privileged, all of us, to witness. I'm not going to say the greatest game of cricket ever because there were long periods of it which were claggy and yep. dreadful, but the maddest game of cricket I've ever seen, the most confusing game and the most fervid, insane atmosphere that Lords will ever have witnessed. So it, it was terrific. Just... Just to stop anybody complaining that it's an Anglo-centric point of view, uh, wisdom is English. So before the Indians come charging in and saying, well, what about the great moment when Virat Kohli did something in 2019? It, it's unlucky. You've got wisdom in India, and, and there's a cover that goes on to wisdom. Yeah, and also, and, but, but, but Kohli was on the cover um, two years ago as well, playing well, reverse sweep. So, I mean, it's not a, it's, yeah. I don't think it's about an Anglo or, or non-Anglo no, perspective. in the English cricket summer, summer really, yeah. is what's going to happen. So, that's right, and I think more to the point, this being a World Cup and ending the way that it did yeah. and all the different 
uh, overlay that you've just touched on there, Dan, uh, Daniel, rather. Uh, it, it, all, it all does tally that that, that would have been the moment um, that, that they chose to put on the front. Just so looking forward to the addition. I'm, I'm sure you've, have you, I've written a couple of things for it this year, have you as well? No, I don't, well, I can't remember. I'm not sure that I have, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't think I have. I may have I'm sure you'll get a Gansey to the dinner anyway. Yeah. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll try to because I like to get my free copy. It's, it's not cheap, <laughs> although I think you can find various offers. But just one last thing on, on, on Butler's sledging, though. Yep. Because I, I found it, um, I shouldn't do, but I found it really amusing because towards the back end of his sledging, if you looked into his eyes, you saw that he, was, he would, had put himself out of his comfort zone. Yeah. And... So he just said something, something <laughs> filthily rude. He called uh, him. He uh, called him a fucking knobhead, yeah, which is like, the most public school yeah. sledge. Yeah. I just love. I, um, I, I enjoyed everything about it. I mean, how can you not? But oh, yeah, but it having was, said it, was it, stupid, but it was funny. That his that his eyes were like, oh, oh no, I, I'm not really this kind of guy. I'm not sure I can really see this through. I mean, look, and don't get me wrong. I think he's got a steely heart and steely determination, and his damn sight tougher than his soft spoken voice and his eyes may give you, but. He's not really the kind of fucking knobhead kind of guy. No, but maybe, but, <laughs> that, but, that, that, but that feels like the sort of thing he would call someone a knobhead, right? That, yeah. That sort of, that does feel right. Like, it, it wasn't like a, an effing C or, or yeah. something like that. But it then was... he could leave, you see. But instead, he suddenly realised that his keeper... Oh, shit, I'm you here. You know, before, when he was an outfielder, he could come in and call someone a fucking knobhead, and then he could go and, you know, yeah. stand, stand a square leg or something. Yeah. But now he's there, and he's thinking, oh, it's a bit awkward now. Because he's still here, I'll yeah. hurry up and get out. I want to know. <laughs> what, I want to know what he. I want to know what Philander said to either Butler in that moment, but probably more realistically, when he was bowling earlier in the Test match to prompt the knobhead rebuke. Yeah, true, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm kind of. I lament the fact that they never came out. Maybe we should um, pigeonhole Joss at some point during the summer and yeah, ask him. He's probably too classy to tell us, but we'll see. Uh, Twenty years this week since uh, Leather Jacket Gate, um, uh, which of course was at Centurion when uh, Hansi Cronier, um engineered uh, that result. Now, I, I haven't um, gone back and listened to this yet, but there's a Sky Sports podcast with Nasser Hussain, Mike Atherton, Ian Ward, and Vidush and Hans Raju, our beloved Vish. And I just note that the first 10 minutes of that is a huge love-in with Vish. It's not, they're not, it's, it's, they, they sell it as 20 years on from the leather jacket, the famous, but it's still mostly talking about what a well, great writer Vish is. And fair enough, too. There should, should be more of that. They should, because he You've got is. Mike Atherton, Nasser, you know, there's former England captains going, so Vish, tell us why you started writing about cricket. Tell us how you became such a great writer it's, it's, it's wonderful podcasting I strongly uh, recommend it well if you listen to it you're, what you'll think you're hearing is Andrew Strauss so you're not yes. it is it is Patricia <laughs> Um, and he can't escape that he's just got a voice that is that but he deserves every single moment of that he deserves to be adored and loved because he's a brilliant writer and he's absolutely nailing it for the independent he's absolutely getting better and better by the minute that 20 years ago I was working in a windowless basement um, in a terrible job for an internet company, a very small startup internet company. And I was working with a South African who adored Hansi Cronier. My recollection of it is that we, he, he was furious that Cronier had given England the sniff. And I'd said, you know, this was a great piece of sportsmanship. And uh, everything had turned in a week when I was like laughing maniacally that his kind of uh, this guy's idol who if you recall I mean one of the big things about Hansi Cronier was that he was a very religious man yeah a very moral and religious man and Martin the guy I was working with just he refused to accept that it was true and then as it became more and more clear that it was I think the the real shock and what suddenly became apparent was that my amusement got replaced by a genuine understanding that Hansi Cronier had stood for something which he didn't really uh, realise as a 30 year old guy living in England 
what he meant to South Africans, of course, and you know, it's only eight years or so since being brought back into the cricketing fold and what an important towering figure he was in their cricket and also in the sort of racial reconciliation that had yep. to take place. Now, that fall from grace is one of the most amazing stories there is and it's often not really uh, told as a story awfully well over here. I think partly because of sensitivities to his family over his subsequent death, you know, in a plane crash and what have you and the murky nature of it and also that cricket has failed actually to act on these warning signs. I mean, it was 20 years ago that happened. It was 10 years later that um, we had the situation yeah, Muhammad Lords, Amir, Lords, Muhammad yeah. Amir and, uh, and, and Salman Butt and so forth. So, uh, you know, this is... And, and, and there's talk that we need to be more concerned again now because of the proliferation of T10 leagues and uh, unusual 2020 leagues and women's cricket, you know, that uh, we need to be more vigilant about what's happening in yep. a lot of areas of the game. So... It's a story, I think, that has resonances and we'd be mindful to learn some of the lessons of that. Yeah, there's also a really good programme made on it for the BBC back in 2012, which I recall, uh, which might have been 10 years since Conyers death, if I recall correctly. And I think Ali Mitchell also made a programme on it for the, for the BBC some years ago. So there's some good source material to go back and hear it in the, in the, in the, in the voices of those who were there that, that fateful week in Pretoria 20 years ago. Uh, that test match starts on Thursday at... Port Elizabeth. Dan, you'll be on the BBC Cricket yeah. Social on the first, second and third day. You can um, hear you helming uh, that rather enjoyable frolic that we have on there from time to time. Yeah. Uh, and before we uh, let you go, I, I just want to return to what we said at the start of the show. You, you put on Twitter on New Year's, just after New Year's Day, a series of banned words that you want taken out of the cricket lexicon. And I thought over the two weeks we have you co-hosting that we, we should just run through a few of those and open them up to debate and open them up to, to comment and contribution. So if you, you know, Dan, give us a few and, and, and keep a few in the bank. In yeah. between times, if you're hearing this and want to add to Dan's list, to hit us up on Twitter or, or, on, or on the email in the usual way and we'll do that next week. Now, I want to say that this is in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, right? Yep. So this isn't like, uh, I, I don't want people pilloried for it and put in the stocks. I'm just saying that the 2020s have started and I think it's time for us to turn over a new leaf, to find new words. Because it isn't that these words are necessarily in and of themselves horrible. It's that their overuse has become irksome to mine eye and indeed to mine ear. I, I'm going to kick us off with various different words for ball. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm not for one minute suggesting that we should, you know, revert to using ridiculous terms like the crimson traveller <laughs> or what have you. Um, and it is important every now and then to move up from ball and delivery. But if you get something like that was a terrific seed with the... Uh, <laughs> with the new nut with the new agate or, or a terrific nut with the new seed or a terrific seed with the new pill 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 I mean if a cricket ball could be likened to a pill where and how are you taking that I would suggest the only way to <laughs> only do one that, way there's only one way and that's not very comfortable either um, it's a horrible image which I don't need I hate conquer I hate cherry I hate seed I hate pill I hate nut and even worse, if he's taken two or three good poles with a couple of fabulous seeds with the new pill, <laughs> then I really will lose my mind. That is like a, that's a combination error that, as I say, in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, I just want to take out of the game. And we've all been, I should add that from time to time, I think we all have been guilty. Well you know, I've on radio, you, you, you feel like you're repeating yourself mm. and you reach for words you may not use ideally. 
I'm sure we've done it on this podcast. I'm oh, sure yeah. we, we stumbled over our words and said things that we'd like to take back. But there is a conditioning, isn't there, that little bad habits to yeah. enter into it. And one one of mine, which I hate and I, I overuse, and I took a bit of time to think about it the other day and realised how stupid it is, is the honours board references. So when, it, when a player takes five wickets or, or makes a century, it'll be reflexively said that they're going on to the honours board. Tell me if I'm wrong. You're, you're, you're a little bit older than me. Did this not just start in 1993 at Lords with the Mark War thing? Sure, when that that is when War was on 99 and um, it got put up on the on a piece of sticky tape on on the Lords Honours Board that he'd already made his hundred and of course um, he Phil Tufnell picks him up on on 99. But I, I don't think this was something that we said before then. And now every ground that seems to be about getting on said venues honours mm. board. I mean, Nathan Lyon last week at, at, at Sydney, well, he's on the honours board now at long last. He's never been on there, on there before. I, I, feel, I feel like that's, that's something that we, we are overdoing is, and, and is a very modern thing. It, it never used to be there. I never remember in the 70s and 80s it being there. This doesn't mean to say, incidentally, that I think that everything that happened in the 70s and 80s uh, was better. It's just that we didn't talk about it. The mawkish sentimentalisation of sport um, always kind of irks me because whilst I recognise that for the players these things might be important or whatever, I'm not sure that they really were massively actually in the 80s. I don't ever recall, you know, Ian Botham saying, oh, I've made it onto the honours board at Lords with that eight for, you know, he was just interested in winning games of cricket and then going out on the lash. I mean, that's... <laughs> that's like what sport is isn't it and it's supposed to be entertainment and fun but yeah, it's, it's almost like it's now a consolation prize if you lose the game of cricket but you've taken five for 186 at Lords then well marvellous you lost by an innings <laughs> a million but, but it's not on just, the honours board but I guess the thing is it, used to, it was Lords to begin with and now it feels like there's a proliferation it's of everywhere this. now it's everywhere you can't move for these wretched I mean is there an honours board at, at, at uh, Dubai Sports City I mean may, maybe there is maybe I, there isn't I but you know I'm sure there. we would say <laughs> that, yeah so have I but, yeah but we, we probably say we probably say it there as much as we would at I, I mean, I, at I look at the one at, at the Oval now in a way that I never did before. It's just out at the back of the pavilion, yep. and um, and it's look, it's quite fun for a spectator because you remember um, uh, the performances and instances, and it brings back the game, doesn't it? But yeah, it, it irritates the hell out of me. I, I just give, wanna... give me one more. Give me the one that you don't like about Twitter, which I saw you put up there the other day. Ah, uh, yeah. Now this is this irritates. And me. this is very Twitter centric. I should add. This is very Twitter. Yeah. This is now. I just want this phrase banned, right? <laughs> um, this is right, AKA. Let's let's take anybody like Washington Sundar. <laughs> uh, this is Washington Sundar's world. We just live in it. <laughs> Now, this is because Washington Sundar has just taken, I don't know, four for seven in an IPL game. Now, it isn't Washington Sundar's <laughs> world and we live in it. it. It is all our world, collectively our world. I, I speak as a man of the left. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want Washington Sundar, Tom Banton, um, either Harris Ralph. I don't want anybody taking over the world on the back of a T20 performance because somebody at, at Crickviz has seen him do well in one game and it's like shot his figures up into the stratosphere and he's now going to be worth, you know, who knows, $260,000 in the IPL auction. No, no, and no again. It's, it was good once. It was good. It was good like, you know, in about 2007 once when something happened once or probably at the beginning of Twitter time, 2010. 
but it's the fact that it happens the whole time. And now there are so many competing. If, worlds. if we went and did, if we went and did a word search on this, and if we had the time, we, we might compile a list of the amount of people whose world it's been, who exactly. indeed we are living in. Worlds it's been rather. It's been Banton's world. It's been Smith's. But it's been everyone's world. It's been everyone's world, been everyone's world. It's been everyone's yeah. world except our own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's so upsetting to me. I mean, again, it's our world too. I like cricketers. Solidarity I wish forever. The best. But yeah, they're not allowed just to take over the world for a day or create their own specific <laughs> world in a series of parallel worlds if they want to do that owned by cricket and if they want to do that they've got to they've got to go and write their own episode of sliders we've often said on the final yeah. word that <laughs> one day jeff and i are going to do an episode by episode recap of the sliders television show from the 1990s it's going to happen Brilliant. and on that you can have parallel worlds and we'll explain that in greater depth at a later date but for this edition of the final word, and I should add, if you want to add a few words and phrases from our game oh, that, that don't. you don't like, Daniel Norcross on Twitter or Norcross Cricket, isn't it? It's it's Norcross Cricket, and, and Norcross and actually, Cricket. Um, if you do, after I, I did a whole thread on these, and I, I did seven or eight of them, and um, this bloke came back to me, a slightly po-faced, serious Australian, said, uh, "You sound like a right prick, telling everybody what words they can and can't say." And I thought. Maybe I did sound like a bit of a prick, so I thought, oh, how do I get out of this one? So I, I wrote back and said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I should have mentioned at the top of the of the thread that I've been commissioned by a bunch of broadcasters and ex-broadcasters to look into words that should be decommissioned, and I'm I'm giving a talk in ba- delivering a paper in Bangalore on it on, in February. <laughs> <laughs> and he replied, oh, really sorry, mate. Um, no offence meant. No offence taken. Happy New Year. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, that, that's... What a great place to leave it, a huge, a huge fabrication. Magnificent. If, if, if you need to get out of a Twitter spat, just lie your way out of it. It seems like good <laughs> advice. Uh, thanks to everyone, as always, for getting to the end of this edition of the show. We're nearing 100 minutes, so well played to you. Thanks for the reviews and ratings on, on the various different podcast outlets. They make a big difference. I always say it, I keep saying it, that makes a huge difference to who can hear the show and where we sit on the rankings at any given moment in time, which has been really flattering over the last six months or, or so. Um, Dan, of course, is with us again next week. We'll do much as we have here, I think we've got an interview in the can which we'll roll out. We're also going to turn our minds to the Women's World T20, which starts in a few weeks. Indeed, it starts around the same time my baby is due, would you believe? Uh, thanks to Bad Producer Productions. We've got another Bad Producer Productions podcast on the boil at the moment, which I can refer you to, another one that I co-host on the greatest season that was. We're in season four. It's a sport audio documentary series, and we're currently looking at the 1994-1995 Australia A team, so the team that played in the quad series with Australia, England and Zimbabwe. A lot of people um, who grew up loving um, cricket in the 90s in Australia will know an awful lot about Australia, eh? And Greg Rowell and the Paul Rifle decision and, and so on. We, we, it was we, the original trolling of the English. It was the it best was. trolling of the English ever done. Well, the BBC put up at the off. time because uh, England, of course, lost to Australia, eh? In the, in the last group yeah. game to, to be eliminated and I think the BBC had at the time a headline they've lost to Australia, A. Eh? Next week they'll lose to Australia, Z. So, um, <laughs> so uh, we, we had um, Graham Howbish on the show last week. We've got Greg Rowell on there next week so get stuck into that patron again we did the nerd pledge uh, segment earlier but uh, that's a really part, big part of what we do uh, click the link in the show notes if you want to be part of it we'd love to have you part of it as I say it's a, a big part of the reason that we've been able to do this weekly um, over the last 12 months is these generous contributions to an independent podcast send us a message uh, on there or on the email finalwordcricket at gmail.com send us a tweet Jeff Lemon Sport for him even though he's on holiday Collins Adam Me Norcross Cricket Dan and I think that's just 
about it, Norky. It's probably time for us yeah. uh, to hit stop, to, to have a, a, a glass of wine or something like that. I'm dressed for the gym. I, I see you are dressed for the Just gym. Just dressed for the gym. Dressed for the, yeah. doesn't mean you'll necessarily go to the gym knowing you as well as I do. And most importantly, thanks for your company. It's always good fun doing the final week. Thanks for being part of it. We'll talk to you next week. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself.